Greetings, church and friends of the church. It is uh, the middle of February 2021. Uh, we are now 11 months into this uh, pandemic season in the wilderness, with the wilderness being this metaphorical image we're considering of being thrust out from, disconnected from uh, what we used to know as normal, and wandering together on our way toward a new normal some point in the future that uh, at which we have not arrived yet. Um, in this series, we are trying to use this time in the wilderness constructively, um, not monopolized by doing the normal thing of the past and, and, and not monopolized by doing a new normal thing. In this space, we have the ability to reflect on how to adapt so that our future together is better and it's more just and it's more peaceful and how uh, we can locate ourselves within lives that are more meaningful, purposeful, uh, more joyful. So as we've used this time to look back on the life that we knew and to look more deeply within, we've sought to better understand these physical tendencies that have evolved within us all as a creature that are a part of every single one of our stories these tendencies that we have to fight and antagonize, the tendency to assume negatively about others, and the tendency to tribalize with those like us. And we've considered how these tendencies instinctively and organically take shape collectively in our culture as very destructive isms, things like racism, antagonism, rugged individualism, that we think will keep us safe, but actually counterproductively destroy that sense of safety and belonging and peace that we all crave as a creature. And so as we've looked more deeply within, and as we've begun to look forward to the other side of this season, we've also named the need for a spirituality, whether or not that is grounded within a particular religious practice or not a spirituality that counteracts these physical forces, a different voice within us that speaks a different vision about who we are and how we relate to one another. And we've started to consider some different practices that we can all do, uh, religious or not, that nurture that non-physical spiritual voice within us that helps us to move beyond the physical, animalistic, counterproductive, destructive tendencies that evolved within us all. We've considered spiritual practices of prayer, meditation, mindfulness, gratitude, uh, seeking honesty in what we say and in what we hear, and living intentionally within the cycle of accountability. And finally, in the last episode, we considered fasting, not just from food for physical reasons, but from other voices and self-indulgences that are self-serving or make us uh, more antagonistic. So we've acknowledged that these spiritual practices cannot be practiced by any other animal, by any other creature. This is what sets us apart as human beings from those other creatures in the created realm that are just purely physical, instinctual, and animal. In this episode, we consider the next um, spiritual practice, which is feasting. Again, a, a practice that no other animal in creation can intentionally choose to do. 
And so when I say that, I acknowledge that any group of animals can get together and gorge on some kind of meal. But the spiritual practice of feasting is about far more than just eating. It is not the end. It is the means to a larger and higher and better end. It's eating with a particular purpose. So when we think of the practice of feasting, I wonder what comes to your mind. I suspect that many of us think about holidays with family and friends, gathering around tables and, and using the occasion of the holiday as an excuse to get together and to fill ourselves with food and drink and company that bring us pleasure. I think of Thanksgivings and Christmases of my childhood with siblings, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. I think of those same holidays now uh, with the addition of our kids and that next generation. I think of St. Patty's and Fourth of July feasts with family and friends with so much gluttony that my stomach and my head hurt for days after. I think of all the wedding receptions I've been to uh, that I've been honored and fortunate to attend with, with all the joy of, of those in this circle of family and friends embodied in the food and the drink and the dancing. But when we look back on our spiritual traditions, which in my case is a Judeo-Christian tradition, the, the texts of our traditions speak uh, of a broader understanding of what it meant to prepare and host a feast. The stories of the scriptures uh, about feasting were not, were not just about a, f a group of family and friends eating and drinking for whatever self-serving purpose, celebration, pleasure, pure gluttony. They were for a bigger reason, which was the nurture of new peace. So one of the first stories in the, the Hebrew scriptures about about a feast is from Genesis 26. It's the story of King Abimelech and Isaac, uh, the son of Abraham. Um, Isaac digs wells and plants crops and becomes very successful um, And while he's living in King Abimelech's nation of Aram. And the king gets threatened and kicks him out of the, the heart of Aram, the heart of the downtown. So Isaac goes somewhere new. He digs a new well. Uh, but the people there come and claim it. And instead of arguing, he moves on to uh, somewhere else within the kingdom. This happens a few more times. He digs, someone else from Abimelech's nation claims it. And without arguing or fighting, Isaac just moves on. So as the story continues, Ab Abimelech goes with his advisor and the commander of his army to where Isaac was. And Isaac says to them, why have you come? Uh, seeing that previously you have hated me and you've sent me away. And so Abimelech says, we see plainly that uh, the God of truth has been with you. So we say, let there be an oath between you and us and let us make a covenant with you. So what Isaac does then is he prepares a feast and then they eat and they drink together. The story tells us in the morning, they rose early and they exchanged their oaths, and Isaac sent, sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. The, the hospitality of the feast made for a new peace. It created a space where they could hear a different story within themselves about the other. 
later in the in the Hebrew story, this this story comes from Second Kings chapter six. There's the the story of a growing conflict between um, between Israel and again the nation of Aram and the Arameans are they keep trying to raid Israel. This is generations later after Isaac and Abimelech. So um, as the story goes, God intervenes by temporarily blinding the, the armies of Aram. And Elisha, the Hebrew prophet, led them into the town of Samaria. Uh, once they are within Samaria, God opens their eyes and they see that they are trapped. And the king of Israel asks Elisha what to do next. He says, shall I kill them now? And Elisha says, no. Did you capture with your sword and your bow those whom you want to kill? No. Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink, and then let them go to their master. So the king of Israel prepared for the men of Aram a great feast. And after they ate and drank, he set them on their way, and they went to their master. And this is how the story ends. And the Arameans no longer raided the land of Israel. So the hospitality of the feast made for a new season of peace in this complicated relationship that these two nations had. It, it created a space where they could, again, hear a new story within themselves about the other. In, this, in the book of Esther, we read about the Jewish peoples being spared genocide and the declaration that they should keep the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar year by year as days of feasting and gladness days uh, for sending gifts of food to one another and presents to the poor. The, the yearly feast was both a time of remembering this critical part of their collective story, story of a foreign king choosing, choosing to spare and include them as outsiders with hospitality and welcome, rather than choosing to allow for their destruction. And also, um, it's this yearly invitation to be hospitable unto others with that same hospitality they know makes for peace. Yeah, the prophet Amos, generations later, um, stood up and talked to uh, a nation of Israel who had become kind of detached from their true identities as being a people who seek the well-being of the nations. And Amos says to them, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring ruin to the poor of the land. God will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. The time is surely coming when God will send a famine on the land, but not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. You shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east, running to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but you won't find it. Amos is saying those who trample on the needy, those who don't, extend hospitality and peace to the poor of the land, find themselves in the midst of a moral and a spiritual famine. God is absent from their selfish feasting. And the absence of guiding goodness and truth always leads to lives that are lacking and left wanting. True feasting must always include the extension of hospitality unto the poor and the needy, such that a new peace and a new connection comes, and with it a restored sense of justice and joy. When Jesus 
started to teach. He told this story of a rich man and poor Lazarus. The rich man dressed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Now the poor man died and was carried away uh, by the angels to be with the patriarch Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. And after death, the poor man is standing with Abraham and the rich man is in a place of torment. And Abraham says to the man, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed. When Jesus told parables that include these scenes of the afterlife, they're apocalyptic, which means they're using this fictional future in, in order to, to be commentary on the actions of the present. The life of feasting without the extension of hospitality to the poor is not only categorized as the antithesis of what the tradition of Abraham taught, but Jesus also wanted to point out how that feasting without including hospitality extended doesn't create peace, but instead creates a chasm between people. The life that resonates with the truth is the life of hospitality that nurtures peace, where this new space is opened up in which both can hear a different story within themselves about the other. This is why Jesus also told a parable about a great feast to which the host first only invited his friends, who, who by the way, were not in a place of need such that they needed his hospitality. One friend had just acquired more land, another had just bought several more yokes of oxen, and a third had just been married, which means that he was able to afford to pay for his dowry as well as the feast for his own wedding. And so in Jesus' story, he doesn't just let us off the hook um, if we try to be hospitable to our friends with whom we already have peace and, and whom are likely not to be in need of our hospitality. So in, in this parable, the host then compels his messenger out into the streets and lanes of the town to bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The feast is not about gluttonous and pleasurable eating among friends, for this doesn't make for more and new peace. Feasts are to be opportunities to nurture new connection new sense of belonging to one another, a new sense of peace. And gathering for food and drink has always been a space for this. This is why Jesus ate with people on purpose. He ate with sinners of every variety. He ate with tax collectors. He ate with women of various reputes. He ate with Samaritans and Greeks and other non-Jews. This is why he didn't just send the thousands of people home after a good sermon, but, but had the disciples provide food for everyone so that the Jews and the Greeks, the men and the women, the slave and free could all feast together and, and live in this space where there is room for a different story about one another to emerge. This is why Jesus sent his followers into towns with, with this, this kind of instruction. Go and carry no purse, no bag, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. 
If anyone's there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. Remain in that house, eat and drink whatever they provide. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Eating together and, and seeking the well-being of those with whom you're eating is directly connected to the central mission of Christianity to nurture new peace in the world. We can hear the depth of intentionality in this practice of sharing in a meal. Remain in the space. Don't move about haphazardly or randomly from one place to the next. Build a depth of relationship and by the giving and receiving of hospitality, nurture peace. True hospitality and the true peace that it nurtures must be two-sided and reciprocal so that there's no sense that one side has and the other has not. If we refuse hospitality, we're really just afraid to accept hospitality and peace. I, I knew that our local food pantry was starting to instigate peace and not just charity when we started to get gifts of hospitality offered freely to pantry volunteers by those uh, neighbors who were coming to receive the hospitality of the pantry. I think the first was this, this amazing baklava. This is an expression of the nearness, the imminence, the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth, says Jesus. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like intentional feasting, not feasts where those who have more than enough gorge themselves for the sake of pleasure while the poor suffer out of sight and out of mind, but, but feasts where hospitality is offered with intentionality. Food and drink are presented in love and where hospitality is received. Eat what is set before you. Don't deny that expression of love and care offered by the other. Peace looks like a shared meal. Peace doesn't look like tolerance from a distance, a disconnection without violence or antagonism toward the other. Peace doesn't look like charity or benevolence from a distance, a disconnection, a chasm between, but with, with scraps of leftovers thrown over the chasm from a distance to the poor. Peace looks like shared meal, sitting together, building connection and relationship, offering and receiving hospitality, and in doing so, expanding the circle of belonging to include each other. Our physical tendencies compel us to keep our distance from those who are not in our tribe, who are not part of our family or friend group or our particular brand of religion or political party or race or whatever. Our physical tendencies tell us to avoid sitting at the same lunch counter as that other person, to assume negatively about them, to assume that they are less or that they are dangerous or that there's nothing that we could learn from them and that there's nothing that they could do for our sake. Our tendencies tell us to antagonize, to fight against them and even the possibility of sitting near at the same table, let alone expending the time and energy to prepare something for them with hospitality. Our tendencies tell us that our tribes 
don't belong together. But a feast creates the space for a different understanding, an understanding that is spiritual in that it refutes what the physical is telling us. The feast creates the space for us to learn that as we make offerings of hospitality to one another, rather than offerings of antagonism and violence, we experience a better, more peaceful, and more meaningful life. We learn that our assumptions were wrong and unfounded, and that there's no danger in the other or in belonging to the other. We learn that we can coexist in peace. And so we learn that we can let our guard down and allow these deceptive self-defense mechanisms and tendencies to calm and to be retrained. We learn that it really is the best interest of all to be good neighbors and not enemies. A good feast is more powerful than any weapon or word of war. So what might this practice look like for us? For you, for me, for our congregation together? You know, granted the application of the spiritual practice of feasting together might have to wait in some ways until we're on the other side of vaccinations and immunity, but there may be ways that we can creatively create space for socially distant or virtual feasting, or maybe there are ways that hospitality can be prepared and delivered, uh, offered and then received safely for the sake of others. Who's on the other end of these physical tendencies? Who's the object of our assumptions, our judgments, our grudges, our indifference? At whom do we look in our families, in our neighborhood, our community, in our world, while thinking, ah, I wish that things were different between us. I wish that we weren't antagonistic or distant or disconnected. What if instead of trying to kill or defeat or ignore them, we tried to share a meal with them? Who might we invite over for dinner when it's safe to do so? To whom might we deliver a meal or a dessert in our family, our friend circle, our neighborhood? With, with whom might we ask to eat together over Zoom or safely outside at a restaurant or on somebody's back deck? So that the story about us isn't the story of disconnection and antagonism, but the story of mutual belonging. As a congregation, uh, for what other community of neighbors might we prepare a feast to share? If we want to nurture peace across the lines uh, of these things that so easily divide us, race, politics, orientation, age, belief, etc. How can we trade our efforts to present our ideas to others with efforts to eat with them instead? It's easy to disagree about a lot of things, but a good meal isn't usually one of them. Plan a feast. Not to fill your belly, but to fill your spirit. Selfish feasting leads to full bellies, but empty spirits, leaving us wanting and lacking. But true feasting, with the giving and receiving of hospitality, not because we're obligated, but because we freely choose to. That's the kind of feast 
that makes for full bellies and spirits. And I dare anyone to come up with a life that sounds better than that. Stay home, stay safe, wear a mask or two, be well and warm and peace to all.